who's winning the drone wars in Ukraine? I think that will determine a lot of things. Well, good news, I got a reporter from Ukraine who's going to talk to us about it right now. Patrick Hilsman, he's a journalist and researcher focused on arms trafficking and refugee issues, Syrian conflict, drug policies, written for Quartz, Alternate Advice News, Daily Beast, Christian Science Monitor. He was part of the Al Jazeera documentary, The Search for Assad's Executioners. So Patrick, welcome and tell us where you are right now. Uh, glad to be here from Lviv in Ukraine. Okay, so I have a lot of questions, including who's winning the war and how you know by uh, you know some of the experiences that you've had in Ukraine. But before we get there, oh, one of the things I'm curious about is everyday life in Ukraine, because some of the cities are completely bombed out. Some of the cities are relatively untouched. Some of them are partially bombed. What are people doing? Are they mainly going about their lives? And how do you go about your lives in a situation like that? It's strange because there's a huge difference between the quality of life in the West where I am right now and in the East where I was two weeks ago in the cities of Kharkiv and Zaporozhye. There's there's a different architecture, there's a different lifestyle there. And also there's a different level of danger because those cities obviously in the East are closer to the front lines. And it's also important to point out that a lot of them are Russian speaking predominantly. So it, there, there is sort of a linguistic divide. But what's interesting is that I think Putin probably expected a lot of the Russian speaking cities in the East to support him. And instead they've defied him. And as a result of this, as the Ukrainian army has pushed back Russian advances, there's been a lot of indiscriminate shelling and bombing of these cities, almost as if to punish them. Well, there's probably a number of reasons that might be among them. And obviously to take them is another reason why they're getting pummeled. But Patrick, any sense of why those Russian speaking, partly Russian ethnic population cities are so devoutly fighting against the Russian invasion? Well, there's definitely some percentage of the population that has sympathies towards Putin or did, but it's not the norm. And I think that they're probably fighting against them because they've seen what he's done to the rest of the country and they've seen how he's been bombing them. I spent some time in an apartment block in the city of Zaporozhye, which is not too far from Mariupol in terms of in terms of Ukraine. And there were air sirens constantly and the majority of the people who live there are Russian speaking. And it was as though they were under siege from an enemy. And it was clear that these are not people that are gonna join the cause of Putin. They were preparing for war. Yeah, there is a great irony in Putin bombing areas with more Russians. So, you know, and it's not Russian citizens, obviously, but people who speak Russian and might be ethnically Russian. And so he's, in a sense, he's probably killed more people who are ethnically Russian than than Ukrainians. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm just saying, given where he's bombing. Um, so, so Patrick, you're gonna talk to us about that too, but I wanted to also ask the question. So given what's happening on the ground now, what we're hearing from the outside is that the Russians have begun to withdraw from the West almost entirely and focusing completely on the East. How true is that and, and what do you think that, that foretells? Oh, it's completely true at this point. They they clearly were trying to at least encircle Kyiv, and they got pushed back completely to the border with Belarus. And they were they've been trying to take Kharkiv. They've been trying to take Zaporozhye in the east. They were trying to 
essentially bisect the country. And it's clear that that, that that has failed. And as a result, you've seen sort of these indiscriminate strikes that have happened. And I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story is that we went, me and my colleague Pavel Kretchen, a Polish reporter, went by, by ambulance. We drove 1300 kilometers out to Zaporozhye. Then we went to Kharkiv and then we drove approximately 1300 kilometers back. We had to sleep in the car at one point. It was, it was a really interesting road experience. And the morning we got back in Lviv, all the way to the west, uh, 1300 kilometers, there was a, a cruise missile strike that blew up a tire shop, a garage, and struck the train station. And it killed, I believe, seven people. Yeah, and and so is it fair to say that unless something dramatically changes, that the the idea that Putin seemed to have in the beginning with that giant 40 mile line of tanks that were coming to encircle Kyiv, that he has basically at this point in the war given up on the idea of taking all of Ukraine. I'm not sure what he's thinking, obviously, because the, the, the motivations, it was a stupid thing to do in the first place. But it, it seems pretty clear that the advance has at least been stopped. But there's a lot of damage that he can still do because he has a gigantic army, he has an air force. Neither side controls the airspace, which is very unique in modern warfare. Interestingly enough, as we were traveling east, we saw what initially I thought was a Ukrainian jet. But then immediately after it flew by, there was an air raid alarm. So it was likely a Russian jet. And that was fairly deep within Ukrainian airspace. So it seems that they're still trying, they're still flying missions, but they're definitely getting beaten back in a lot of areas. There's areas that border Russia directly. And then there's Mariupol, obviously, where they've been able to essentially obliterate cities that are on the front lines. And they're able to make progress that way. But this sort of blitzkrieg maneuver that they were probably trying just didn't work. Okay, so that leads us to the drone wars. And you've covered this before too. But it looks like we have this strange situation where it's the Turkish drones versus the Israeli drones that are fighting this war between Ukraine and Russia. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's very interesting. You essentially have two very bad human rights violators that are providing the drones for both sides. You have the Bayaktar drone coming from Erdogan's Turkey, and then you have the four post drone, which is coming from Israel, but going to Russia. And it's a lot of people have found it rather curious that the Israelis actually helped upgrade the Russian drone arsenal. And these Israeli designed drones and Israeli licensed drones are being used to target Ukrainians. And it, they, they're overtly releasing video of this happening. And it's, it's very interesting, there was one that was shot down or that came down a couple weeks ago and it had the IAI, which is Israeli Aircraft Industries logo on it. So it's not like this is, it's not like this is something that's hidden. But it's it's an interesting situation where you have sort of a classic a classic war in the sky but with new technology and the world hasn't seen this. There's a potential for it to go really bad. So uh, Israel is against Iran and Hezbollah, but Russia is in favor of Iran and Hezbollah. Uh, yet Israel is arming Russia. Turkey is a NATO ally, uh, but on the other hand, Erdogan's pretty good uh, allies with Russia, but he's arming the Ukrainians. It's almost as if the only thing that any of them care about is the money. The money, the prestige, there seems to always, you always wanna scratch each other's back if you're authoritarians. It's an interesting situation. The the Israelis claim to have stopped providing drone parts 
for to the Russians in 2016. But that was two years after the occupation of Crimea. So they were complicit in what Putin is doing in Ukraine. And there's there's a possibility that they're still providing parts. They recently, the Israelis recently declined to comment on whether or not they were providing upgrade upkeep for the for the Russian forepost fleet. So the Bayaktars, those are the Turkish drones, have done massive damage to the Russian army, and so have the javelins that are made by the U.S. Yeah. So it, for all of our fancy aircraft carrier and nuclear subs and F-35s, it's like two of the simplest technologies that's doing all, all the hard work in these wars. So. Uh, given how well that has worked, which is surprising, right? That, that it's done so much damage to the second largest army in the world. Yeah. Is there any chance that Ukraine actually flat out wins this war and Russia completely withdraws without taking any more of Ukraine? I don't know about taking it or not, but I think that they'd be able to hold the territory that they have pretty effectively in a lot of cases. And I have a piece coming out tomorrow on offbeat research that explores the drone wars, which you could sort of look at as a microcosm for the greater war. And the war on the ground is obviously different, but it's hard to it's it's hard to beat an entrenched army, which is something that Russia learned the hard way when they try to encircle or take Kyiv and essentially bisect Ukraine. And if Ukraine moves into the east, there's a high potential for them to experience heavy losses, trying to push back the Russian forces. And then also that adds the increased risk of there being civilian losses in those areas that have been occupied by Russia. So it's very important that people put pressure externally on Russia to try and make that fight as to make that fight as quick and as um as unharmful to the civilian population as possible. Because we need this war to end with Russia losing, but the, the, the more pressure we can put that isn't through violence, the better. It's better for everybody if Putin can be isolated and if the occupation of a sovereign nation and people can be halted through pressure. Because doing it, doing it through fighting is gonna be incredibly costly. So one thing I've always wondered is, Mariupol looks like it's just completely bombed out. And I can't believe there are any civilians left there, but apparently there are some. I can't get a good sense of what percentage of the civilians have left that city. And if the Russians take it, to your point, they will entrench themselves with their troops. It'll be hard to retake. But what I keep wondering is, to what avail, like to what point? You take a city with almost no civilians left in it, why'd you bother taking it? I guess it's, I mean, you, you could look at it as like a, as part of toxic masculinity of dictators or just thinking that they need to take something in order to claim that they have had some sort of victory. It's 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 hard to understand why, but I think that probably they, they just wanna show that they've taken something so that it's not completely humiliating for them. Because in military terms, it's been humiliating for Russia. Yeah, so uh, last two things real quick. You you did, uh, saw a lot of refugees when you were stationed in Poland and obviously also within Ukraine. At this point, has there been a, have most of the people who wanted to get out of Ukraine already gotten out of Ukraine? Is everybody else staying, especially in the West that is less war torn or what's the current status right now? A lot of people have moved West. So the percentage of Russian speakers has increased in the Western areas, and it's very interesting. Also, a lot of the NGO workers who I've been speaking to were planning on evacuating people from Ukraine to third party countries like Ireland and France. And what they found is that some people are returning because the Ukrainians have been successful in pushing the Russians out of the Western or certain parts of Ukraine. 
So right now they're working on a strategy to help accommodate the refugees from the east here in the west. Well, that's interesting. And uh, now this is the impossible question. Um, uh, how long do you think this war might go on given the state of fighting and where it is today in Ukraine? This is just a personal opinion, but there have been reports of potentially thousands of Ukrainian civilians being kidnapped and taken to Russia. Similar to what we saw in Syria where chemical attack survivors were kidnapped by Syrian security forces and Russian security forces. And how the war could end with those people still kidnapped and Putin in power seems inconceivable to people who have lost relatives that way. So my personal opinion is that the war will probably go on so long as Putin is in power. So I haven't heard that before. So. If that's true, why are they kidnapping them? What's the point of that? Well, the, the witnesses from the Mariupol bombings that were kidnapped were kidnapped with the purpose of sort of getting them to claim that it was a false flag or whatever. But the circumstances are completely coercive and it's overt. For example, there was a woman who was, uh, who was pregnant when a maternity hospital was bombed. And there's a famous photo of her being evacuated. And then subsequently, she was featured in Russia on Russian television talking about how you know it wasn't really an attack and there was no bombing. And it's it's overtly it's overtly coercive. Uh, yeah, so for propaganda purposes. So yeah. anytime you have prisoners of war, kidnappings, etc., cetera, uh, obviously uh, those those hostage videos they put out don't mean a goddamn thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, although I'm sure some here in, in America will take it seriously anyway, you know who those are. Um, okay. Uh, All right, Patrick, we're gonna have to check back in with you as you continue to report from Ukraine. Fascinating developments and no one, including most especially Vladimir Putin, expected the Ukrainian army to be able to do as well as it did. But it does put the country in a state of limbo indefinitely. And so how that gets resolved is going to be important, not just for Russia, but the whole world and certainly Ukraine as well. All right. Scary future. It is. Next time we might talk about the nukes because, in fact, here I can't help myself. I'll ask one last quick question. The Russians keep threatening nukes. Everybody assumes they're bluffing. I don't know that you have any more, you know, information about this being on the ground than anyone else does. But do you have any sense of of like are the Ukrainians certain that it's a bluff or are they significantly worried about it? There's no way to be certain, but it just the, the potential blowback from that is just incredible. And it just seems like it seems like the costs are escalating at home for Putin. So that in its own way would be like a humiliation to have to use a nuke to beat a country that's like one tenth your population or, or even less. It's I, I think that it's they have a tendency to, to talk big when they can't do anything in the real world. Well, I hope you're right. I hope that it's perceived as a humiliation, then Putin would be far less likely to do it and the world would be safer. So let's hope that's accurate. All right, Patrick Hilsman reporting from Ukraine. Thank you, we appreciate it. Great talking to you, cheers. All right, now we're gonna get a progressive after my own heart. She accused her corporate democratic opponent of having soft hands. I can't love that enough. Um, all right, Jamie McLeod Skinner, uh, she's uh, running a primary against Kurt Schrader in Oregon, uh, Oregon 5. Uh, the primary is coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. This one is super important uh, because it's such a good contrast between a progressive and a corporate Democrat. Uh, and she has an excellent chance of winning. So there's two reasons why 
it's really important. Jamie, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much, and thanks for all you do for getting the word out, and letting people know about the important progressive values we're trying to get across the finish line. All right, that's wonderful. So I'm going to start with your opponent, Kurt Schrader's a longtime Democrat. He's one of the most conservative Democrats in Congress. If for people unfamiliar with him, why? Well, what does he do that's so conservative or corporate? Well, if you ask people who've even supported him in the past, they'll say simply that he's lost touch. He doesn't deliver for Oregonians and he's lost touch. He is a 25 year politician, a multimillionaire. He's actually an heir from a big, big pharma heir. He's got four houses throughout the country and spends most of his time living in his house in Maryland while Oregonians are struggling to, to get by. He's taken over 8 million in corporate PAC money and and he, it's been pay to play. So he's taken 700,000 from Big Pharma and then lower, uh, voted against lowering prescription drug prices. Uh, he's taken over 300,000 from big oil and gas and stripped out climate protections and green energy protections from the infrastructure bill while our homes are burning in Oregon. It's just really egregious. He's voted against uh, the American Rescue Plan, stimulus checks, raising the minimum wage, even against uh, the right to organize for, for for working people until they showed up and protested and got him to change his vote on the PRO Act. So I want to come back to lowering drug prices because I think that's one of the most egregious things that he did. Uh, but uh, the corporate Democrats say, but look, that's not fair. They vote with the Democratic Party generally anyway, and they're opposed to the Republicans. But was he really opposed to Donald Trump? Uh, well, back in um, after the insurrection on January 6th, he was actually, uh, I believe, the lone Democrat to argue against impeaching Trump and said impeaching Trump would be like lynching him. When it comes to prescription drug prices, he was the deciding vote. That September 15th, it was in committee, but it was preventing it from moving forward. Kurt Schrader was the deciding vote against lowering prescription drug prices. And I can tell you, I talked to just the other day, talked to a grandfather who's really worried about his grandson getting getting an EpiPen and not being able to afford it because of you know having allergies. And it's folks like Kurt Schrader who have voted against lowering prescription drug prices and then also block things from moving forward. You know, he's he's made excuses for why he's voted the way he did and and, and his vote against it. But the fact of the matter is you go on to to, to uh, CVS or Walgreens right now and those those drug prices are still high. Okay, so first of all, uh Holding Trump accountable, if you call that a lynching, are you really a Democrat? Jesus, that is the lowest, lowest, lowest bar there is to just oppose Donald Trump. And he couldn't clear that bar, yet still corporate Democrats are on his side. It's disgusting. But on the drug prices, I know for a fact, we cover the stories. Every time there was any effort to lower drug prices, even by the smallest amount for the smallest number of drugs, Kurt Schrader would be the number one opponent. And and Jamie, how hurtful is that? Because it's not just a vote. It in it what what I've seen is it defangs all the other Democrats because then they are worried about criticizing their freaking colleague Kurt Schrader, so they let him like bury all those bills that might actually help the American people. Well, it's it's hurting in so many ways. Democrats right now are facing stiff competition and threats of losing the House in November. Because of corporate Democrats like Kurt Schrader, who have essentially gutted and undermined not just the president's agenda, but Build Back Better was the agenda for all Americans to get us through, get us back on our feet after after the the devastating impacts of the COVID economy, and he got in the way of that. 
that's and that's not just Democrats who he's hurting. When I talk to independents and even Republicans across the district, there's a frustration that there's been a falling short of the promises made and a falling short of the opportunity to be able to move forward on so many so many issues and so many things that people need. But lowering prescription drug prices, that's just been egregious because you know over 90% of the folks in our in our district and really in our state want to see their prescription drug prices lowered. This is not even a Democrat or Republican issue. This is does your family need health care issue? And that applies no. to all of us. No, I, this is why I get so frustrated with progressives in Congress because I mean, if you can't call out Kurt Schrader, you can't you can't do anything. The the guy that lower drug prices polls at over ninety percent in the country, not among Democrats, among the entire country, and Kurt Schrader is the number one reason why the Democrats won't do it. But other Democrats are like, oh my God, no, we can't criticize a fellow Democrat. Good news if Jamie's the new representative in that district, they won't have to. Um, so. Uh, by the way, JamieForOregon.com, JamieForOregon.com. Uh, she's not taking corporate back money. He's taking nothing but corporate back money. So grassroots uh, makes all the difference here. Okay, now uh, let's talk about endorsements. Uh, Jamie, who are uh, some of your top endorsers? Uh, well, Oregonians. So I've got over uh, 70 elected officials throughout the state. I've got all sorts of labor unions who are endorsing, and it's essentially the people who got us through COVID. It's it's teachers and nurses and grocery clerks and longshoremen, the front line of folks who really carried us through COVID, and we're depending on us moving forward on this Build Back Better agenda. We've got newspapers, regional newspapers throughout the district. I just got a Portland paper today. The the another paper we had Bend papers and and Willamette Week as well, and and this is really. This has never happened in Oregon before, but four of the county Democratic parties. So, not just here in Central Oregon, not just Deschutes County and Lynn County and Marion County, but even Clackamas County, which is Kurt Schrader's home county. The county Democratic parties have voted overwhelmingly to endorse me in this race. And it's just because there's yeah. an opportunity to replace them. We've got a newly drawn district, over half of it's new, and Oregonians just want to see him go. Yeah, so this is a really interesting phenomenon that isn't just about Oregon. So uh, for there's like a state rebellion against the National Democratic Party. After the Progressive Caucus uh, didn't back Nina Turner, the state caucuses got together, uh, progressive caucuses in the states, and said, we're backing Nina Turner. The Cleveland Plain Dealer endorsed Nina Turner. Now take that and multiply it by a couple of folds for Jamie, because it is a full-blown rebellion in Oregon. Uh, the state uh, Democrats, not just state progressives, but state Democrats, are saying no to Schrader. No, we're not going to. I don't. We don't care what national Democrats think. We live here. Uh, we're voting at Jamie McLeod Skinner, and so both the papers, the, the like you said, just the unions, the, the the county officials. I've never seen anything like it. So it is. I love that rebellion, and it is super strong in Oregon. Have I mentioned JamieForOregon.com? Um, so. Jamie, but now let's talk about those national Democrats. Who are some of his top endorsers? Well, he's got a lot of corporate PAC support. He's got the president recently endorsed him, which we were very disappointed to see because, you know, with all due respect to the president, he just got that wrong. I'll say on the national level, I also want to mention Senator Elizabeth Warren also stepped up and endorsed me. Was really proud of that National Organization for Women. A lot of progressive organizations have endorsed me. Having said that. Uh, that's why, Jamie, this is going to be such an important election. Is the state rebellion going to work 
or is the National Democrats backed up by national media going to to win again? Because the way the national media works is they go, oh, well, Biden has endorsed someone, it's over. Everybody bow their heads, no one's allowed to disagree. I didn't realize that that was the spirit of the Democratic Party. And so give me an update from the local press a little bit and the media overall, because usually the media is the top opponent of progressives in these races. No, well, they've been pushing back again. I've gotten endorsements from newspapers across the regional newspapers across the district. And actually, the Ben Bulletin, the paper for the Central Oregon, doesn't even recognize Kurt as an incumbent. They say this is an open seat because over half of it's new. We're winning on the ground. And that's why we're seeing even more corporate PAC money flooding in to try to prevent us from winning. And this is where people can really step up across the country and help us out. You know, I've 80% of my support comes from donations comes from Oregonians, only 8% for Kurt. He's been heavily, heavily supported by corporate PACs who are out of state. And this I don't take corporate PAC money, as you said. This is about people and representing people in Congress and balancing out, you know, making sure we're pushing back on that. So, you know, folks can help out, like you mentioned, jamiefororegon.com. Uh, this is a great opportunity. Ballots have already dropped. We're a vote by mail state, so people are voting now. And the election is May 17th. And so this is a critical time for one last push to balance out. It's a David and Goliath race in terms of the airwaves. But people are pushing back. Oregonians are pushing back. Oregonians want to decide in this election. And so folks across the country can really help us keep the uh, national influence out so we can decide our nominee and then win this in November. So last quick question, of all the corporate PACs, which one is doing the most damage? Because in some it's crypto bros, some it's oil, some it's banking, drug companies, etc. Who's supporting the most there? It's big pharma and he's their guy. I mean, he was a deciding vote against lowering prescription drug prices. They're afraid of losing him because they will be held accountable. It's not that they're not gonna make a profit. It's just they will make a fair profit and stop gouging us. And so that's that's all we wanna do. But big pharma is stepping in over 700,000 they've given him and they just dumped a bunch more money in to try to do a last push and start hitting me on stuff. So if people can help out, that's great because Oregonians, want to see a representative who's going to look out after the needs of working people, of seniors, of students. That's what we're all about and and any help people can provide be appreciated. Yeah, guys, if you like higher drug prices, Kurt Schrader's your guy. If you want to lower drug prices, Jamie McLeod Skinner is going to fight like hell to make that happen. And just the getting rid of Kurt Schrader from Congress would be a giant help to lowering drug prices. Look, you guys see me interview, you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of progressives. It, it especially on the issue of drug prices, there is no more important race than this. So, uh, JamieForOregon.com, Jamie McLeod Skinner, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for all you're doing. Really appreciate it. No problem.